This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week from Gadigal Land. I'm David Lipson. Coming up, electricity prices are set to soar in Australia by up to 35% next year, but the government still promises to cut power prices. Also, this weekend, China's Communist Party will hand an unprecedented third five-year term to Xi Jinping, making him the most powerful leader since Mao Zedong. What does that mean for China and its power contest with the West? First up, though. Missiles rained down on Kyiv and cities across Ukraine this week as Russia launched its most widespread airstrikes since the start of the war. They tore into schools, parks and power facilities. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky said Russia targeted civilians and critical infrastructure, leaving huge areas without electricity, heat or water. The attacks followed an explosion on the Kerch Bridge, a pet project of Vladimir Putin's, which links annexed Crimea to Russia. And they were carried out under a new Russian commander, Sergei Sorovkin, who has a reputation for brutality, raising fears about a new phase in Russia's bloody war. Olena Lenin is a national security expert at the University of New Haven and comes from eastern Ukraine. Well, this was by far the biggest wave of uh, indiscriminate airstrikes, in fact, to uh, hit civilian and military infrastructure uh, since the start of the war, really. Um, you know, obviously, uh, we know the, uh, um, the impact has been absolutely catastrophic, with more than 11 regional cities hit in, in, in daytime. So, you know, it's very clear that these were deliberate attacks uh, in uh, revenge for the explosion that happened on the Kerch Street Bridge. As we come on the air, we are tracking the fallout after an explosion consumed parts of the only bridge linking the occupied Crimean Peninsula to Russia. The bridge collapse disrupted a key supply line for Russian troops fighting in southern Ukraine and dealt a major blow to the Kremlin. But I think uh, um, more importantly, what Putin is trying to signal here is that he has no intentions to revise war aims, as some people had been anticipating that given the poor performance of the Russian military, um, you know, there were speculations that perhaps Putin might be preparing for negotiations and, uh, and potentially agreeing to a ceasefire to at least to rearm and, and regroup and reconstitute his forces. Um, but I think this, these recent strikes on um, civilian and military infrastructure showed that Putin is, is very much in the escalation mode and, and, and showing no intentions to downsize his aims and is absolutely committed to defending these newly occupied territories uh, with conventional means for now, but also you know, hinting with as much clarity as, as he can that nuclear escalation is not ruled out. Um, but at the same time, I think that you know, a secondary objective here could also be to demonstrate that Russia has unlimited supply of precision-guided missiles that they had been firing into Ukraine, because we had been speculating for a while, given how many of these airstrikes they had executed since the start of the war, that they might, in fact, be running out uh, of these capabilities. Right now, really, the only leverage remaining to Putin is 
these long-range capabilities that they can fire from land, sea, um, and, and air into any corner of the Ukrainian territory. So do you think this marks a new phase of the war or just a continuation of President Putin's goals and methods? I think that this is more of a uh, tactical change because uh, the Ukrainians are actually still advancing in the southern and in eastern Ukraine. Um, So these strikes have not, this new wave of airstrikes, this level of escalation, has not actually affected battlefield dynamics as much. Um, But also, um, you know, one of Putin's objectives here was to break the morale of the Ukrainian troops and the people and uh, sow panic and chaos and demoralize people. But I think they achieved the opposite. The Ukrainians uh, seem to be even more emboldened by uh, by these strikes and and are even more prepared to uh, proceed with the counteroffensive because, you know, it's just another reinforcement that Putin is not ready to scale down his objectives and, and to kind of recalibrate this entire operation. These attacks also came just after Vladimir Putin appointed a new military commander to oversee the war, Sergei Sorovkin. Tell us about him. Um, he is known as uh, one of the more ruthless, unforgiving, relentless commanders who made a name for himself uh, in Syria. And, and one of the things that he has become famous or infamous for was these brutal air bombardments in Syria. And, and uh, so there's an expectation that he will perhaps uh, mirror some of those tactics in, in Ukraine. And we have already seen that. At this point, it is unclear whether he can, in fact, turn the tide in in Russia's favor as Ukraine has increasingly fielded just a much better trained force, um, better equipped, better motivated force uh, that will continue advancing um, on the battlefield. So even though the change of command is expected to improve the performance of the Russian military, uh, it is unclear whether uh, Russia, in fact, can uh, turn the tide as we're at a point where Ukraine's successes cannot be reversed. Another thing that appears to be changing is the involvement of Russia's proxies. There's been talk of Moldova getting involved and certainly Belarus. It's been used as a launch pad for Russian attacks already. But its president, Alexander Lukashenko, said this week he was deploying troops to Ukraine alongside Russia for the first time. How serious is that? Well, I mean, Belarus is definitely a force multiplier for for Russia, Um, although numerically, I I don't think that it will necessarily be a game changer as, um, again, Ukraine has at, at, at the moment has numerical advantage um, and qualitative advantage, both in terms of the manpower they can field and also in terms of equipment. Um, and not to say that it's not a concern. Um, it is definitely um, a concern, especially for northern Ukraine, where uh, Belarus uh, was previously used as a launching pad for the Kiev offensive. Again, I, I, you know, it remains to be seen, um, but it, it doesn't seem as though this will be a game changer. You know, and, and as you know, most military experts have said in the past, even if Russia mobilized, if they, even if they announced uh, general mobilization tomorrow, uh, they would still not be able to reverse Ukraine's successes as, as uh, Ukraine just has a much uh, better trained and better equipped force that is you know, um, combat ready as opposed to um, Russia mobilizing more people, but it would take more time uh, to train them. Um, and you know, we're just not sure if they will be combat ready quickly enough to uh, turn the tide in this war. So does any of this do much to stall the progress that Ukraine has already made in in the south and east, taking back huge swathes of occupied territory? And, And what can we expect 
from its campaign in the, in the weeks and months ahead as the weather gets colder? Right. So the correlation of forces remains in Ukraine's favor. But at the end of the day, you know, wars are decided by who can endure longer. Right now, Ukraine is still positioned to uh, win in the endurance department. Um, and I think the Western support here is absolutely critical. If Ukraine can continue receiving financial assistance, humanitarian assistance from the West, most importantly, uh, they uh, critically need alternative uh, sources of energy, as you know, they still rely on Russia for uh, you know, heating and electricity. Uh, so uh, in, in, in that way, Ukraine can endure this longer. And I think that's what Russia counts on. The Russia uh, counts on uh, democracies being unreliable. So one of, uh, one of the signals here is, is that one of the messages that Putin is trying to get across is to expose the weaknesses in Western unity and resolve. And by showing that, look, de- democracies are unreliable, unpredictable, they get too distracted with elections, domestic politics, and uh, you know the support of Ukraine will eventually dwindle, and you know Ukraine fatigue, so to speak, will set in, and the West will start sort of giving up on Ukraine. So that, so hmm. you know, from Putin's point of view, they can wait it out. And and do you think Ukraine is getting that support from Western countries? Are they stepping up? To, to, to offer that military and other support? So far, I, I think the support has been strong. And I think what we have seen so far is that Ukraine's success, a stunning success in the counteroffensive in Kharkiv, had given Western uh, Ukraine's Western partners more um, uh, assurance or more faith, uh, I would say, in Ukraine's ability to deliver and to actually maintain the momentum and potentially defeat Russia on, on the battlefield. So I think the West has has been emboldened by uh, and inspired by Ukraine's successes. If anything, I think the, the last few weeks of escalation um, have only empowered the West to, uh, to provide more um, because Russia had made it very clear that it, it has no intention to scale down its objectives. That's Olena Lennon, a national security expert at the University of New Haven. Earlier this year, there was concern in several states that the lights might go out. Australia's east coast is bracing for a winter power crisis, with millions facing the threat of blackouts tonight. The country's energy crisis is hitting hard in New South Wales and Queensland. Residents warned to be cautious or risk being cut off. Since then, power prices have risen by between 5 and 20%, depending where you live. And this week, there were warnings they could shoot up much further, by up to 35% next year. It's a big price jump for consumers and another headache for the government, which went to the election promising to cut power bills. In the middle of this year, people listening to this, I'm sure, would remember that we had something called the unprecedented energy crisis. Tony Wood is director of the energy program at the Grattan Institute. That was caused by a combination of circumstances, which the people in the market had to dramatically changed the way they control the system. The market wasn't working very well. We had coal-fired power stations that couldn't get coal, and some of the coal-fired power stations were offline for other reasons. As a result of that, there were some a lot of big things had to be done, and the cost of all that happened earlier this year has not yet flowed through to our individual consumer prices, and that's likely to happen sometime probably in the, early, in the next calendar year. And in addition to that, we're seeing some underlying ongoing cost increases driven by international circumstances, 
which will add to those pressures, and that resulted in one of the, ma- the heads of one of the major energy companies suggesting, and he went public on this, that we could see prices easily in excess of 35%. The chief executive of one of Australia's major energy companies, Alinta, has made a dire prediction that without government intervention, energy prices will rise a staggering 35% next year. Now, 35% increases are very big and very concerning for everybody. Yeah, they certainly are. And as you say, energy prices have spiked all around the world. We know the war in Ukraine and sanctions on Russia have driven up prices. But we're such a big exporter of LNG and coal. Shouldn't that offer us some sort of protection from those rising prices? Normally it does. And we've got a very unusual situation, which unfortunately may not get much better anytime soon. Our gas and coal markets are connected. We export coal and gas to the world, so we're connected to the international market. And normally, that's a good thing um, because the prices tend to maintain stability because we are a major supplier and there are other major suppliers. What's happened in the short term is we've seen both a significant increase in the demand for more coal in some parts of the world, but in particular, more gas, a lot of it driven by what's going on in the Ukraine. What that means is that the very short-term high prices that people overseas are prepared to pay for gas and for coal are flowing through to our prices, and that's reflected in what happens when someone goes to the market now looking for additional coal or gas, and even more supply wouldn't fix this problem because there's such a huge demand for gas at almost any price that whatever gas we produce is exposed to that same price. So the connection between the domestic and the international market is creating a really difficult problem and the market, in the short term at least, is not going to solve it. Right, so they're the international factors. But there was also a debate this week among energy executives like Alinta's Jeff Dimery about the transition away from fossil fuels like coal and LNG here in Australia driving up prices. What cost me $1 billion to acquire is going to cost me $8 billion to replace. So let's talk about that and still explain to me how energy prices come down. I don't get it. Just explain what's happening here on the domestic market. In addition to what we've just been talking about, we have already committed to and we now have a legislated emissions reduction target for the country. And this is consistent with similar emissions reduction targets that have been set around the world. And like most major transitions, these things very rarely go completely smoothly and we're dealing with a lot of teething problems, some of which are self-imposed. So what I mean by that is that whilst we are committed to dramatically growing the share of renewable energy, and that's wind and solar, and we've done that very successfully, although we've probably done the easy bit, that is we've put solar on our rooftops and we've built wind and solar farms where the transmission grid has enough capacity to absorb them, we're now past that and we have to start building a lot more transmission and storage to be able to deliver and balance those renewable resources, which are going to be in different parts of the country from where the coal and gas-fired power stations have been. And that starts to create huge challenges in terms of building stuff because getting materials and getting people right now is not an easy thing to do at all. And in addition to that, we're dealing in areas of the country where people are pretty upset if you come and start building transmission lines through their community and dealing with all that imposes major time and possibly cost constraints. So Doing all this across the country at the same time as we're also trying to reduce emissions in other sectors creates a really big problem. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. We have to do it. 
but the challenges of doing it need to be not underestimated at all. And I think most of the companies, including governments, recognise this requires a huge amount of planning, commitment, involvement and management if we're going to do it right. And Jeff was raising concerns that he was seeing, expecting prices to come down anytime soon as a result of this, is probably optimistic. Well, what does that mean for the future? Because the government says more renewables will bring down prices. But as you say, it's, it's much more complicated than that, isn't it? There's no doubt that what Mr Bowen talks about, and that is that uh, renewable energy is by far the, the cheapest form of energy, is correct. The trick is that as we now start to expand the amount of renewables, because they are intermittent, and that's not a criticism, that's just that's a, a physical characteristic of wind and solar, we have to make sure we build the um, balancing technologies or capacity to be able to be there when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining, and we've got to build all this transmission. Those two costs will largely erode a lot of the benefits of wind and solar themselves being cheaper. And what it means is, on balance, whilst we won't see, I don't think we're going to see major price increases in the longer term, I don't think we're going to see major price decreases either uh, because we're going to have to maintain that stability now. Of course, that means that we can probably get very high levels of renewable energy, shut down the coal-fired power stations, and we'll get our emissions reductions for virtually no cost at all. But I think it's probably optimistic to think that we're going to see dramatic end-user price reductions in that medium to longer term. Now, all sorts of things are going to happen along this journey. What we do need to do is keep our eyes very wide open and make sure that we are doing everything we can to plan this and implement it carefully. Because right now, we're not doing it particularly well. And they're the sort of issues that the energy executives raised at the conference earlier this week. Right, so all of this adds up to some short-term, significant short-term expenses, and we see that with power prices rising already. Yet the government is standing by this pre-election commitment to cut power bills by $275 a year by 2025. How could it do that, and what are the options it has to ensure it happens? Well, firstly, in my view, <laughs> they can't. I mean, unless the government was themselves to subsidise it in some dramatic way, which I don't think we're in a, the budget's in a position to do that. So I think the, the argument that the policies that this government is following will produce a lower price outcome than the alternative is absolutely right. Because if we had not done this, we'd be replacing old coal-fired power stations as the old ones get older, and they are getting older and less reliable. With new coal-fired power stations, they would also cost a lot more money as well. So this is the best alternative. So I think the prices will be lower than they would have been if we'd pursued a fossil fuel future, but I don't think we're going to bring the, bring the prices down. And I think it's, it's, it is tricky, it is very difficult for the government to, to run this argument because most people aren't attracted by the idea, well, you should be thankful it's not as bad as it might have been. I think the trick here is that most people would have took it as a literal thing that the prices are going to be lower. Now, the government may still think they can do that. I'm not sure that they can, but I do think it's still the right policy objective to go down the way we are. It does mean, of course, that we're still left with, at least in the short term, these very high prices. What about the sorts of price caps that we've seen, for example, in the UK, and Europe. Is this a feasible option for this government to bring down power prices? Look, I think price caps are almost always one of the worst solutions, but I do think the government needs to intervene. What's happening here is that the cost of producing gas and electricity has not increased. What's increased is the market price. And so what we probably have to do is think about disconnecting the domestic market from the international market. And one way to do that is to introduce some form of price cap on the wholesale gas price because it is 
the high price of gas that is setting the benchmark to the high price of electricity. And if we could bring that down, and if we did it in a way that was short term, then we might have some chance of at least avoiding these eye-wateringly high prices that people are talking about. That's Tony Wood, the Director of the Energy Program at the Grattan Institute. The Chinese Communist Party convenes this weekend for its National Congress, which will almost certainly hand its leader, Xi Jinping, a third five-year term in office, possibly setting him up for a lifetime as leader. So in order to understand Xi Jinping, it's important to remember that he has a deep understanding of Chinese history. He has this sense of entitlement and privilege. He's driven very much by power. He's incredibly ambitious. And he sees himself as playing a fundamental role in China's future. And that Chinese future is one where China becomes even bigger and even stronger. Su Lin Wong is The Economist's China correspondent and host of a new podcast, The Prince, about Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping was born into Chinese Communist Party royalty. And so Xi Jinping was raised in immense privilege at a time when most Chinese lived in abject poverty. All that was lost when Xi Jinping turned nine years old because his father was purged after he fell out with Mao. And Xi Jinping became ostracised at school, he was bullied, and he was eventually sent to live in the Chinese countryside. And so he lived in a cave for seven years. And conditions there were incredibly tough as well. And so I think all of these experiences in his childhood really have shaped him to this very day. And so he has this real fear of chaos and this real desire for control. And what he took from his childhood wasn't that the party in itself was bad. It was that during his childhood, the Chinese Communist Party lost control. And so what cannot happen again is the party losing control. And so that really has shaped his worldview. Well, he certainly has that power now. He's been in power for a decade already. How has he changed the party and China in that time? When Xi Jinping came to power 10 years ago, the Chinese Communist Party was in crisis and China, the country itself, was also in crisis. There were hundreds of thousands of protests around the country over all kinds of things, corruption, air pollution, land grabs, uh, workers' rights. Uh, and the Communist Party was fighting at the very highest levels between different factions. What's important to remember is that the Chinese Communist Party has nearly 100 million members. And Xi Jinping came in and he launched his signature corruption crackdown on the party, uh, really did actually clamp down on corruption, but also conveniently used this corruption crackdown to get rid of his political rivals and coupled this with a real ideological clampdown. So he really instilled ideological discipline throughout the Communist Party with all kinds of his own policies. And once he had seized control of this Chinese Communist Party, he used the party to seize control of China. And so we've seen China become a lot more repressive, a lot more authoritarian over the past 10 years. And what he's done is he's built this high-tech 
censorship and surveillance machine using artificial intelligence and algorithms, which is making it you know, much, much harder for popular discontent to bubble to the surface. And even when it does, the Chinese Communist Party, led by Xi Jinping, now has many, many more, more tools at its disposal to clamp down on this discontent. So within China, is there much opposition to Xi and his vision? It's really hard to know what's happening inside China because the propaganda is so pervasive and because there is such a powerful censorship machine. But just this week, we actually saw a protest in Beijing where some very brave people unfurled banners on a big highway and they said, you know, down with Xi Jinping and overthrow this dictator and tyrant and things like, you know, we want freedom, not COVID tests. So that was a very, very rare kind of protest in Beijing at a time when the city is incredibly locked down ahead of this big, important party congress, which starts on Sunday. So, you know, there there is definitely discontent, but overall, those kinds of protests are incredibly rare. Uh, and so... It's, it's very hard to judge how representative that is of many Chinese people's feelings towards Xi Jinping. So Xi Jinping is now 69. This Congress will give him another five years in office and indeed may end up handing him a, a lifetime in office. What are the implications of that for, for the system itself, the, the, the communist system? The implications for Xi Jinping staying on for a third term and perhaps for the rest of his life are that the system could become a lot more fragile. And that's because we don't know who will be his successor. It's Everyone is going to be looking over the next week at whether or not Xi Jinping names a successor at this upcoming party congress. But, you know, it's very likely he will not, because if he does, he kind of becomes a lame duck and he's created a lot of enemies among the political elite with his corruption crackdown and his general clampdowns on Chinese society. So, you know, he is trying to protect himself from his enemies coming after him as well. And so it's very unlikely he'll name a successor. And then the question is, what does that mean for continuity and stability within the Chinese Communist Party? And what we've seen historically is that, you know, the biggest rifts uh, within the party don't actually come from popular uprisings. They come from political infighting at the very, very highest levels of the party. And we saw that 10 years ago as Xi Jinping took power. One of his main rivals, tried to undermine him and and launch a kind of coup. We saw that in 1989. You know, the world remembers photos of idealistic students and workers protesting in Tiananmen Square. But actually behind the scenes, there were these different factions within the party fighting it out. So, you know, as Xi Jinping consolidates his power even further and as he doesn't name a successor, the fragility of the party increases and the risks of Xi Jinping sort of getting ill or dying in office mean that the party could really face a big crisis in the future. Su Ling Wong there, The Economist's China correspondent. You can find her podcast about Xi Jinping by searching for The Prince. Well, that's this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to This Week, which is produced by Madeline Jenner, Nell Whitehead, Will Ockenden and me, David Lipson. 